This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome and thanks to everyone joining us from around the world. I'm Brian Jones, Associate Director of Education at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And I'm thrilled to welcome you to tonight's conversation, Abolitionist Teaching and the Future of Our Schools. We're gathering at a moment of horror and hope. Once again, abolition is in the air. But what does it mean for education? I'm so grateful that we have this time together to think about the future of our schools and our world that we deserve. It's my pleasure to introduce our speakers and start our discussion. Bettina L. Love is an award-winning author and the Athletic Association Endowed Professor at University of Georgia. She's the author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. Goldie Muhammad is an Associate Professor of Language and Literacy at Georgia State University. She also serves as the Director of the GSU Urban Literacy Clinic. She is the author of Cultivating Genius, an Equity Model, for culturally and historically responsive literacy. Dina Simmons is an activist, educator, and student of life from the Bronx, New York. She is the assistant director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and an associate research scientist at the Yale Child Study Center. She's the author of the forthcoming book, White Rules for Black People. Hello, everybody. How are you? What's up, Brian? Hi, Brian. So good to have you here. This is amazing. This is like a dream come true. I can't believe it's finally happening. So we're talking about abolitionist teaching. We're talking about big changes, freedom dreaming, all of these things. But I thought maybe the best way to begin would be with a personal story, how you got to be sitting here today having this conversation. Is there a moment when your perspective on schools and education shifted. When you became an abolitionist, when you decided that the changes needed to be deeper. Yeah. <laughs> so when I, when I thought about that question, um, I thought about my schooling experience. And so I grew up in upstate New York. I grew up in Rochester, New York. And I was a high school basketball player. Some would say star, but I was a high school basketball player. And um, I grew up in a very tight knit black community, right? You know, I, I grew up in that community where you didn't really know white folks. You might have seen white folks at school as your teachers, but your, your neighborhood, your community, the people that you interacted with, were pretty much black folk um, who cared for me, who loved on me, who took care of me. I was in a community of folks who cared about me. And I went off to college and my freshman year, uh, I started to realize that I was the only 
women's basketball player in the class with all the male basketball players. And I was like, you know, I wonder what's going on. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I went to the other um, women on the basketball team and I asked them, well, what classes are you in? Oh, you know, biology, geometry. I mean, they were I was like, those classes sound interesting. Myself, I was taking um, indoor recreation for a semester and I took outdoor recreation for a semester. I took first aid for a full semester. There's only so many ways you can, you can do a tourniquet. <laughs> There's only so many ways you can put a Band-Aid on. And so I realized that I was in like the jock track. Mm. And I didn't know what to do. So I, you know, I'm trying to figure this thing out. And so I go to the advising office and they're like, yeah, you know, you're from the inner city. You went to an inner city school. You're an inner city kid. This is this is your major. And at that moment, I was so pissed off. I'm 19 years old. I've done everything they told me to do to be successful. I've done my best. I've got good grades. I got a basketball scholarship. And here I am without the ability to decide what I want to be in life after everything that I've done to get here. And at that very moment, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to become. I didn't know I wanted to be a teacher. But what I knew was I was pissed off. And I was pissed off because it wasn't just one person telling me I couldn't be what I wanted to be. It was a structure in place that nobody would let me around. Nobody would nobody would see that I was more than that. Nobody could see that I was more than an athlete. And that for me has just been something that has burned in me, uh, you know, for the last 21 years of how I was treated, even though I was trying to do my best. Um, and luckily, I transferred and went to the University of Pittsburgh. Go Pittsburgh. And they <laughs> me like an athlete who was a student. And I was I was a student athlete. Um, so for me, that was really the turning point in my life was realizing, oh, this is racism. But I had I'd known racism, but this is systematic racism. Mm. This is the denying of me as a person and my dreams and what I want in my life because of where I came from mm. and never seeing my ability because of where I came from and because of the color of my skin and because of the schools I went to and because of who my parents were and because of my class and all of those things being denied. And so that was a big turning point in my life um, that really got me into these ideas of justice and equity and what does all that mean um, as a 21, 22 year old person. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, um, when I think about where I came to and how I came to my abolitionist spirit and me as an educator, uh, at first I feel like I got a rep Gary, Indiana, because we got Rochester in the Bronx on the phone. So it all started in Gary, Indiana. All right, let me just say that. But I remember as a child reading the Quran and as a Muslim child reading the Quran and reading a hadith, it was this particular hadith 
that in a hadith is like a story and or a tradition in Islam. But there was a t- particular hadith that said that there are three ways to respond to oppression. The first way is to respond uh, with your hand or with your body, like through protests. If you're unable to respond with your hand, to respond with your tongue, to speak out and talk out and write out against the wrongdoing or their oppression. And if you cannot do either, the third response is to feel that it is wrong in your heart. And as a child, that just struck me. It's like whatever I was set out to do, whatever ever path toward freedom, the freeing of myself, the freeing of others, I knew that there had to be multiple. That really struck me. Like, how can I respond to oppression? How can I not be silent? Because there are some people now in Islam, the third is the weakest of faith because you can't just go in life feeling that is bad. You got to do something, right? And so I like to let my teaching, my thought process inform, like, don't just feel, I mean, feeling is good, but you have to speak and act against it. And and honestly, I am like reinvigorated every time I read and study Blackness. That, that charges me today as an educator and as a teacher educator to continue on this path toward abolitionist teaching, because I get so excited when I study the models of humanity that our ancestors had laid before us. Blackness is so brilliant. It's so beautiful. And it's like I fall in love with it every day. And so if that doesn't help me with the spirit of abolitionist teaching, I mean, what what will? So it's just that every day, like to what end? Why am I doing this work? Mm-hmm. And how can I continue moving it forward? So, um, Bettina, usually people look at you and they think you're a basketball player. I'm also a basketball player, but people usually don't go there when they see me. They're like, oh, <laughs> short. So whatever. So for me, I'll share three different moments, right? The first moment is um, when I was in first grade. So I went to school in the Bronx. I went to a, cl- a Catholic school and I'm a twin. So there's someone else walking in these streets looking as cute as I am. So um <laughs> I'm just teasing. Anyway, so so Dana and I did kindergarten together and then we went to first grade. They split us up. And back in the day in my Catholic school, there was a fast class and there was a slow class. It was called that. Everyone knew that there was a fast class and there was a slow class. You know what class they put me in? The slow class, because the teachers did not know how to tell the difference. So for the um, for efficiency, they separated us, not for equity, because there's a tension between equity and efficiency. So I remember being in this class as a little first grader being like, yo, everybody's out of their seats. Like there's some mess happening in a closet. Like I'm a first grader thing of these things. And every day I protested with my mother. I said I was the valedictorian. Y- y'all, I was in first grade. I was like, I am the valedictorian in kindergarten. I don't know why I'm in the slow class, but it was because they could not tell the difference. And so my life could have been different had I stayed there because you were trapped. I was I would have been trapped. I made my mom walk over to the school and get me put into the fast class, which is where I belonged. So that was my first moment. And I had a moment of success. And then I went on through school and everything was great. Like Bettina, like you, I grew up in a, 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 a community mostly of Latinx and black folks, Caribbean folks. Uh, and so I, I, I felt like 
I had the the backing of loving myself, that blackness that you talk about, Goldie, that Caribbean-ness, that Latinx-ness, like it was all there around me in the Bronx all the time. I never, I'm so grateful to be from the Bronx. But then I went to high school from the Bronx thinking I was the bomb because I was like mass smart. Everyone was like, yo, you top of the class, you top of the class. I was like, yeah, yeah top of the class. And then I went to boarding school and they're like, mm, have several seats. Like, <laughs> you're not that smart. <laughs> no, that's like, it, it was one of the, I actually felt the difference of what I had for the first time and what the rest of the world had. So I felt like the, the underprivileged, I felt like the charity kid for the first time. I felt like I had everything before uh, until I went there. And the messages that were constantly told to me through how people, my, my tone was policed, how my clothes were policed, how I, my, my speaking and, and, and the, the adverb versus like everything was policed. And so what I learned there was I wasn't enough. And I also come from a Caribbean background where it's like we, we see schools, we see education as our savior. Right. And so here we are. I'm, I'm at this place that's supposed to be my savior. and I'm getting hurt by these places. And so so I was like thinking about sort of the, 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 the disconnect, right? The inequity um, and the, the, the way my blackness was not welcome. And so that was another moment for me that, I, that made me angry. But then when I went back to the Bronx, so back to full circle, back to the Bronx, back to be a teacher, I realized that 20 plus years ago when I left, nothing changed when I came back, right? So they wanted me to teach the same way, like where, did, where were my students supposed to go? So we so so we we've already decided who's gonna end up being successful. And that's why I ended up being the, the, the star child, the token, the poster child, because somehow I, someone favored me. Mm-hmm. Someone I guess you could have this scholarship, but all of that ups, upset me because I my my students couldn't didn't have that. And I tried to be that for my students, but the system that you talk about, Bettina, was set up to fail black students, brown students, like student non-white students in many ways and students at the margins and so i i had many of those moments but those are three that come to mind starting first grade yeah you know we at the schomburg center we have a research fellowship opportunity for undergraduates um, um many different types of people but mostly black and what's interesting is that these are students who are very successful in school who are making it through not only just making it through they're going on to pursue more school they're going to get graduate degrees, but if you ask them about their experience in school as people of color, it's almost universally a story of trauma. Mm-hmm. So let's talk for a little bit. I mean, you've already named some of it, like tracking, for example, but there's other ways that white supremacy shows up in our schools. And I'm grateful to the uprising that's ongoing in our streets. Never let it be said that an, an uprising solves nothing. Uh, that this uprising is forcing people to think about these questions more broadly and more deeply, and no doubt is motivating many of the people who are tuning in right now mm-hmm. to think about their own schools and what they can do as teachers, as educators, as parents. So let's name for them, what are some of the ways that white supremacy is showing up in our schools in the 21st century? Tone policing. Can we also just say that the the that the way it shows up is not only um, that we it's not only about students, it's also about the faculty. Like if you talk to faculty of color, they can give you a list of and staff of color of the many ways that white supremacy has harmed them. Um, you know, the tone police saying we want you to do the equity work and the diversity work, but make sure you make sure we're comfortable. You know, so there's all of these different ways 
where the tokenized you get tokenized, right? So like, hey, could we use you, right? So now you're you're the poster child, and how much danger it is to be lifted up when you're needed, right? You feel sort of objectified. There's just so many ways that these institutions harm us, and then they're like, get up! I like I gave you a gift. What do you mean you're not grateful? I mean, I liked you when I gave you a scholarship, right? So they hold like it's a, sort of like. I'm in charge of you, right? That the what hasn't changed is the mentality of slavery, right? We see it show up and how um, we are expected to be superheroes and heroines, super people. And when we when we when we take one day off, it's like we're lazy, right? These are different, like this. So then it's the narrative of of the single na- narrative of blackness. Oh, you're lazy. You're loud. Um, you're angry. So all of these ways are ways that white supremacy show up and it's insidious. There are ways that it shows up in um, it it more blatantly, but it's the insidious ways where you kind of have an experience multiple deaths daily just by showing up authentically as your black self. You know, and it's crazy that the emotional labor that black folks, especially in white spaces, got to engage in um, just to ask yourself, am I safe to be black here? Right. And then I got to put on this show and I got to perform. That kills me because the, 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 the holding it in is work, is laborious, it's killing us. And so, I mean, those are just some things that, that come up for me um, right now. And I, I say this to, I, I just last week I was, I, I experienced a hate crime. So just being here, is, is, is labor for me, right? It's labor for me. I've been crying, I've been scared, I've been re-triggered from like growing up in the Bronx and being scared because someone's, because, I, because I'm speaking my truth about racism, about my experience and my truths. It happens in those blatant ways and in those insidious ways of like policing, tone policing, correcting, um, over-managing, over-surveilling. It happens to adults and it happens to children. So that's what I'll say for now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, where does it not show up? (laughs) That's the question. It shows up in our curriculum implicitly and explicitly. Our curriculum is dated, it's white, it's offensive. Our our children cannot breathe in our curriculum. They can't live and learn freely. The curriculum isn't responsive to their histories and their identities and their desired future selves. Um, It shows up in our hiring practices, in our interview questions, the questions that we ask. I am so tired of of hearing the questions like, why do you want to be a teacher here? You know, give me three um, challenges you have as a teacher. I want us to ask more direct, more explicit, more black oriented questions to teach black students. Right. How does anti-racism show up in your math curriculum? How will you teach grounded in black excellence? Because you're teaching 90 percent of black students. It shows up in our lab of recruitment and hiring of teachers of color. And this is problematic for our teacher ed programs, right? Our admissions process oftentimes exclude or don't invite people to even be teachers who look like us. Or we use things like GRE and other test scores to exclude them from being teachers. Or we teach folks like Vygotsky and Dewey, like they are just the models of educational success. 
even teach them about black theorists and black educational folks who can lead the way, who can lead their thinking toward this profession, that kills their spirit. So it's in our standardized tests. It's in our teacher evaluation. It's in our curriculum. It's in our state standards. And it is it's sort of conditioning the minds of educators that we have to teach skills only. Mm-hmm. You know, I study the history of education and the history of reading and the ways in which we educate kids today is almost too similar to how we have educated uh, folks in Europe in the 14th, 15th, 16th century. It's time that we change because this is not moving us forward. It's continuing to perpetuate the same foolishness, the same failure. It's in the zero tolerance policies and how we suspend. And, you know, we don't make it impossible for uh, students to fail because the system is is designed for them to fail. So it's everywhere. I mean, that's Goldie Muhammad. I mean, I don't know what you want, what you heard in the street. <laughs> I mean, if, if I could add something, um, I think then there's two things that, that you hit on, Goldie, is that idea, like, you know, there's spirit murdering our babies. Yeah. Right. Every day you walk into the classroom with all of these things that Goldie and Dee have talked about, and it's on you. That murders your spirit daily. And then the other thing that I would say is that it's something that I've heard um social justice lawyer, social movement lawyer, uh, Derek Parnell say, this idea of managing inequality. That's what we do in education. We want to manage the inequality. So we have positions, we have directors, we have all these things that manage the inequality. We all know we have the inequality, but we're not in the business of eradicating. We're not in the business of removing the inequality. We're in the business of just managing the inequality. So in a state like Georgia, they have an award that you get called beating the odds. They actually give you an award if you are a school that can beat the odds. That's white supremacy. So you're gonna sit here and tell me, here are all the things that I know that get into your way. And some of the odds that they say is uh, class, low, low income, um, areas where there's a lot of uh, folks who come in and out, Um, race. So you have all these things that you know are barriers. And instead of removing the barriers, you rather measure me against the barriers. Mm. And so what we're concerned about doing in education is truly managing inequality. We don't want, we don't want to eradicate. We don't want to remove it. We want to manage it. And then they want to give us positions to manage the inequality. So they want to make black folks. We want you to be the director of equity and inclusion. Yep, okay, yep. the director of managing white folks hurting black children. Now, I'm not saying that those positions are not necessary. I'm not saying those positions are useless. But what I'm saying is that is how white supremacy shows up because it's the idea that, well, we gave you a director of equity. What, what more do y'all want? Mm. Everybody should be good now because we're managing the inequality. Are you cleaning so up mess cleaning up somebody else's mess that's what your job is to clean up a mess that is not even yours that's that's why so many black folks are like no i'm good this moment right here this reckoning (laughs) that's on you yeah yeah dina you've warned that people are going to take this too lightly like checking a box having a workshop reading one book 
um, you know, and especially in your field of social emotional learning, that people are going to say, oh, well, we do social emotional learning. So that covers it. Um, we're good. Uh, you've called that white supremacy with a hug. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Um, so first of all, thank you for saying that. Um, I, first of all, like our schools are seeped in white supremacy. I think we made that really clear. So to me, I always tell people, it doesn't matter what your curriculum is. If you put it in a system without any lens that is abolitionist, that is anti-racist, it is going to be, it can be used as a weapon. So I think oftentimes um, <clears throat> social emotional learning and equity get conflated. They're like, but students are talking about their feelings. Like, you know, and I think it's important. I'm a proponent of social emotional learning if it doesn't create harm. We can use anything in education to create harm. And let me tell you, good intentions don't equal good outcomes, right? So people are like, but I, but I meant well. Like when I told you that you were articulate, like I really just was meaning well. And like your hair, and like when I touched it, I thought it was like exotic. And I'm just like, y'all, that's a great intention, but you are harming me because what you've done is you dehumanized me. And so I think a lot of what we do, regardless of as a SEL or mindfulness or any of the of these things, if, if the educator has not done the work, if the school is seeped in white supremacy, then guess what that curriculum is? A white supremacist curriculum. And so so I said, if you don't if you don't if we don't apply an equity lens, a racial equity lens, an abolitionist lens, an anti-racist lens to racial justice lens, you name it. Very easily, SEL becomes white supremacy with the hub. Because what happens is now is SEL is being used as another way to distinguish black children, you know, black and brown children, everyone else, and white children. So now it's like, you know, you know, those students really don't know how to control themselves. You know, we just, you know what, we should do that SEL program with them and then maybe they'll learn how to manage their behaviors. And I wouldn't, you know, they can have that self-control and, and stuff like that. But you can't talk about self and social awareness without talking about white supremacy, right? And when you're talking about, when we talk about the narrative of social emotional learning and we're, we're thinking about how to apply that in more privileged schools and more white schools, what you get is, you get, well, you know, our students need this for college and career readiness. So these two narratives of like why SEL is important is again, how are we using a tool to further disenfranchise and disenfranchise the already disenfranchised? So again, anything that you do without applying an abolition lens, an anti-racist lens, a racial justice lens, all of that stuff can be used as a weapon and it can be used as a weapon of white supremacy. So don't come in here with that Trojan heart horse SEL talking about, but it's here for the kids without doing that work. We need anti-racist healing. Um, and, and like I, I just wrote a piece um, that if you, you can't you know, be trauma informed if you're not talking about racism. A lot of us, like me, I walk in with my racial trauma. I walk in with folks, you know, have said something about the way I spoke or the way I pronounced things. But then you want to give me a hug without address. You want to give me some trauma informed instruction without addressing the trauma of racism, the trauma of white supremacy. So we're just like what you said, Bettina, we're just putting Band-Aids on. We need to understand that what, whatever you apply to a school system right now, the way it is, which is seeped in white whiteness and seeped in white supremacy can very, very easily be used as a weapon. And so that's why, you know, without that lens, SEL is white supremacy with a hug. You could put a smile in there too, if you want, but basically. Right. Ouch. Um, well, I think that brings us 
to the question of abolition. And people, this word is out there in a new way, and more people are thinking, it seems like, and talking about it, but mostly in respect to the police or to prisons or to the carceral state. Abolition of police or abolition of prisons. But what does it mean for school? Are we talking about abolishing school? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> See, this, this is why I wanted this conversation. To be. This <laughs> you know, and, and when you say the word, you know, abolitionist or abolish, you know, people get a knee jerk reaction and, and they they get all up in their feelings. And I, I understand that. But I, but if we want to understand, it's not a radical thing to want to be seen as fully human. It's not a radical thing to want to say this. The way y'all set this up isn't fair. The way you set it up, some people get to play. Some people don't get to play. The way you set it up, not only do we not get to play, there are not structures and institutions and conditions that make sure that I can't play and my children's children can't play. Mm -hmm. So what we're asking for is to start over. And that shouldn't be something so radical. But what makes abolition radical is because now you're saying, oh, yeah, and we want to take away your choice, too. Oh, oh so, yeah, we, we, we want a playing field that says the things that you have, the privileges that you have, you no longer have those privileges because you didn't earn them. And since you didn't earn them, you need to go ahead and give them up. And so when we think about abolition. Yes, it is a big ask. It is a big push, but it is a push for everybody's humanity. It is not just a push for black and brown folks' humanity. It is a push for everybody's humanity. And so when we think about education and its link to abolition, it has so much to do with the ideas that folks like Angela Davis have given us, folks like Ruth Wilson Gilmore has given us, David Stallbaugh, Erica Minor, those folks who have done that particular type of work. And what they have said, oh, let me not forget Charlene Carruthers out of Chicago. And what they have said is that we not only want to abolish these buildings, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to abolish the conditions that create those buildings. Mm. We're trying to abolish, eradicate the conditions that make it possible to treat children like this in schools, yes. that make it possible to suspend and to lock our babies up, the conditions that make it possible to standardize tests and standardize tests to a point where I don't even know what grade I'm in anymore, the conditions that make it possible that we're not hiring black and brown teachers. And so we're not just trying to say we want new school buildings or we want, and we're also not trying to say, hey, throw money at this and then we're going to keep the same old, same old. So abolitionist teaching is so much about eradicating and not trying to reform, not trying to reimagine. I tell people all the time, would you want to reimagine slavery? I don't want to reimagine slavery. <laughs> you can debt it. I don't want to reimagine nothing. And so we got to get out this idea. And so what abolition is trying to say is that we know that we're having this moment of saying the words abolition and it's becoming popularized because of what the work has been done by so many civil rights icons and leaders and everyday people that put their lives and their hearts on the line. Mm -hmm. And now we're at a moment to say abolition. Mm -hmm. But we're also at a moment where we're done with 
gradual, incremental reforms. Because what we know so much about reforms is to appease white folks, for the white liberals to feel like we're doing good work. We got to reform in. So why are you doing good work and why are you doing these little gradual reforms? I'm dying. Mm-hmm. I'm being shot. I'm being spirit murdered. And so we're not talking anymore about the reforms. We are talking about trying to abolish a system that is oppressive and we want to abolish the conditions that perpetuate that oppression to black and brown folks. Mm -hmm. So when I think about abolitionist teaching, I'm thinking about, of course, not only defunding the police, but no police in schools, counselors in schools, therapists in schools, healers in schools. Mm -hmm. We're talking about building curriculum that we're doing away with standards. We're doing away with Eurocentric standards, community standards, community education, community-based. That's the curriculum. We're doing away with the idea that schools cannot have kids play. We're doing away with standardized testing. We're doing away where our babies don't learn their history and their culture and the beauty of who they are, right? And those things that we're asking It's human things, it's things for humanity, it's things to be seen and to see yourself as beautiful. That's what abolitionist teaching is about. And so it may seem like a big lift, but it's a lift for humanity for all of us. And I wanna say one, one thing from your book, Bettina, is the way you tell stories from the 19th century abolition movement that I'd like you to say a little bit about, because I think people, should explore some of the deeper, there's there's another level to thinking about this word abolition because in the 19th century, people thought that if you said, well, yeah, we're working for the end of slavery, that you were like out of your mind, that that's like not always a big lift, it's like an impossible lift. And yet there's ways that people, even when they weren't winning, even if they didn't live to see the victory, there's ways that they pushed towards it and never gave up on that goal. I don't wanna say more, but that's that's what I was getting <laughs> from, from no. writing about that. And for me, that's the beauty of being an abolitionist is to have, you know, what Robin D. D. Kelly talks about in this freedom dream. The idea that you are going to live your life in a way that you won't see the finish line, but you're going to live your life every day like you can win around the corner. Yeah. And abolitionists were strategic. They were thoughtful. They were methodical. I mean, come on, Harriet Tubman, stop playing. Yeah. Like, people don't talk about the ingenuity and the creativity and the brilliance of Harriet Tubman, to lead revolts, to be a spy, to go back and forth, like she was brilliant. And so abolitionists all, you know, people just think it's like radicals throwing up the table every day. You know, these are brilliant, beautiful minds who are strategic and thoughtful and methodical. But on top of all of that, to live your life every day for justice, knowing that you may not see that justice. That's the beauty of being an abolitionist. And it's also the beauty that black and brown folks have every single day to get up in the morning and to love and to find joy and to find peace within it all. I keep saying like, who does this? Who keeps fighting like this? Who keeps protesting, marching, rioting? We are, black folks make up 13 damn percent of the population and look what we have done. We have made contributions in everything, or we have led math, science, technology, politics, medicine, sports, you name it, art, literature, you name it. Look what we have done. 
And you have to marvel in black people to be, you know, we talk about anti-racism and abolitionist teaching. The one thing that you have to say is that, my God, look at these people. Mm -hmm. And if you don't see that in our little black babies, then you can't be an abolitionist. Mm -hmm. You can't open your mouth and say black lives matter, then you can't be an abolitionist. And that was one of the big reasons I wanted to write something like abolitionist teaching. I wanted to say, you can't vote against my interest and then come here talk about you cautiously relevant. No, that ain't going to work. Right. That's not going to work. You got to be down for this. Abolitionist teaching is a way of life. Mm. It's not what you do in the classroom. It's what you, who you are. Your very being has to be changed. And so we're not just talking about you come in the classroom, you got your, you got your, uh, you know, Rashid had two apples, Keisha had three apples. How many apples did they have? We're not, we, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that you understand, believe the history and the knowledge and the ingenuity and the creativity and the beauty of black people deep in your soul. And you don't got to be black to understand that. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, we've always wanted for other people what we wanted for ourselves. And a lot of people can't say that. You know, you name this idea of abolitionists as a push for everyone's humanity. You know, I'm tired of hearing, how can I use my white privilege to help a black or brown person? I'm just like, how can you be more human? You know, it's period. How can you be more human? Because this thing of abolitionists work and equity and culturally and historically responsive education is humanizing. It's like seeing humanity as one body. And when one arm or limb is hurt, is oppressed, is marginalized, and if you don't feel anything, you don't deserve to be called human. That's where we're at in education. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're no longer, how can I use my privilege? It's like, how can you be more human? And if we want to abolish, we do want to abolish what's happening in education. We have to stop putting band-aids, as you said. I, I say we have to stop putting fresh coats of paint mm-hmm. on same debilitating structures that have not served our children, our family, our communities, our spirits for, it it hasn't served us for so, so long. But we'll put a fresh coat of paint on um, something and call it response to intervention, race to the top, no child left behind, differentiation. And all it's the same foolishness underneath. It's the same structures and scaffolds that were janky and never intended to abolish, never intended to help black children. But we put fresh coats of paint, right? So it's fresh, it's shiny. And then publishing companies start to make programs around it. And then our schools and our district, they put millions of dollars toward these. Millions. going to abolish. We have to abolish the state learning standards. Mm-hmm. They are limited. If we're going to abolish, we have to abolish the teacher evaluation. We have to abolish the curriculum that we spend money on. You know, I do a lot of work in New York and sometimes I just turn the book over in the curriculum that the districts adopt and I see all white women. Who wrote the curriculum? Who wrote the state standards? Who didn't write them, right? Who who are the faces on the frameworks you mandate across K-12 education? Whose face is behind uh, the authorship of the teacher evaluation and of these state tests? See, the problem is we have been operating in teaching skills alone. 
And so when I studied abolitionists and readers, writers, and thinkers, I'm like, man, they had more advanced standards for learning than we have in 2020. Mm -hmm. They weren't just about cultivating their skills. They were about cultivating their identity development, their intellectualism, and their criticality so that they knew how to navigate the world toward anti-oppression. In schools, we're just doing one of those four things, Mm -hmm. which is skills. And so if we're going to talk about abolishing, let's start with what we set as the purpose for schools in the first place. And for those people who don't feel that limb of black lives of anyone who has been marginalized, they need to leave the profession, period. Go be happy doing something else because you are just contributing to hurt and harm for our babies. And I just want you to say a little bit more about that, because you're also somebody who's looking at those 19th century black educators and activists and using their work as models, not just for black children, but really for all children, that actually all children need to look at what black people were doing with their literary practices in the 19th century. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I found that 19th century educators, readers, activists, writers, um, they taught us how to read the world, how to be, how to see, how to act. These were models for humanity. Um, Sister Harriet was just one um, that we can learn from. But in my work, I study black literary societies, which were some of like the first book clubs for reading and writing and cultivating their knowledge and things like that. But they didn't just come together to read and write for the sake of joy. Right. Like we think of book clubs today, as Bettina just reminded us, they came together to strategize as they were experiencing joy and literature and learning. They were plotting. They were strategizing. They were planning to improve the social conditions for black folks, but uh, for all of humanity. And so um, they had four learning goals. Um, These were like their four goals for uh, every time they came together to read, write, think, speak debate. They were cultivating four different areas. Identity. They were asking themselves, how can my reading, learning and understanding help me to understand who I am, who I'm not, who I want it to be? Right. They wanted to understand their collective black identities, uh, their original identities of Africa. Right. And then they, they wanted to also learn about people who were different than them. The second goal is skills. They wanted to cultivate math skills, uh, language arts and history and science. The third was intellectualism. They wanted to become smarter about something. They didn't get together to learn how to decode uh, words or cite textual evidence. (laughs) They wanted to learn about new people, places, things and concepts. And the fourth goal is criticality. They wanted to advance their understanding of power, equity, anti-racism and other anti-oppressions. See, they didn't want to be passive consumers of knowledge or, or passive producers of knowledge. They wanted to question and name oppression and wrong. You know, our, it, these four things are so important for our students because what child does not need identity, skills, intellect, and criticality? They have to pick partners. They have to vote for somebody. You don't want to just take in everything you hear as truth. You want to question it. You want to be able to discern between truth and falsehood. That's what criticality allowed them to do. 
Now, when you teach these four goals together today, you're teaching genius. You're teaching the whole child. You're teaching in the lens of black excellence. That's why I said black excellence is the way forward. This is a model that places like Chicago, who has 89 percent and New York, 85 percent black and brown kids. How do you not have a black and brown model? <laughs> and you got that many kids of color. Yeah. And you're talking about all these other frameworks that were that were designed by people that didn't even work with this population of students that you're serving. And so in my so I'm trying to take this model and I work with teachers of creating unit plans around it to teach all four of these collective um, learning pursuits. And I and I got them from studying historical documents from the 19th century. That's awesome. Bettina was just holding up your book for anybody. <laughs> she held it up like five times. <laughs> what she was doing. Um, you know, I want to bring the issue of gender into this conversation. It was just an absolutely massive rally in Brooklyn for black trans lives. You know, I, uh, Bettina, you shouted out some black women who had done amazing work in pioneering the ideas of abolition in the 20th century. What what is what is the connection here with why is it so important to think about the position of black women and black queer folks when we're trying to move forward into this different future, into an abolitionist future? I mean, I, we, we've we've always held up the world. I mean, the whole world has. The thing is, I think black women and black queer women and queer folks and black queer folks have always been magic, right? People, when they say black girl magic, they, they there's actually we need to study it, right? We we need to like operationalize it because the fact that we are still a lot, like the fact that we're still alive when the whole world is coming at us every single day, even sometimes within our community and nobody's holding us up, we're still holding up the world. And Goldie, you said like, we treat people the way we just wish we were treated. And that, and, and, and when you walk in that sort of the intersection, the intersectionality of all those identities of being oppressed, it's so, it's fascinating how much compassion we have. And it's, it's, it's interesting that even though we're compassionate, we get called ang angry. We get called all of these names and, and crazy and all the things because but what we have always been is compassionate. We still hold up the world when the world has never, ever tried to hold us up. Um, we, I, I think that we've always had a blueprint uh, of how to do this. Um, I think when we speak, sometimes people ignore us. They're like, oh, I think folks just need to listen to us when we speak and understand the gems and the magic of the fact that every single day um, we wake up and we're alive when the whole world has tried to kill us. I think of Lucille Clifton and that poem that she writes about like every day the world try to kill me and I'm still here. I, every time I see another black woman, I know that's her experience and we can relate We can relate to that. Uh, so um, I think we just have been doing it since day one and it's time for us to pay, it's time for us to let, let black queer folks lead. Yeah. Let, let black women lead, just get out the way and I just want to say something about your question, Goldie, just to go back a little bit about the question of what can I do with my white privilege? I know there's a lot of white folks here. The question in and of itself is offensive because it means that you want to keep your white privilege. There's a power that you don't want to give up by asking that question. You're just saying you stay down where you are. There's what is seeped in that question is a white superior, superiority and black inferiority. I don't want your privilege. 
I, I just want to be human. I don't need you to, I need you to get out the way. I need you to give up power. I need you to do all those things because don't come in this way and make me passive like you're my savior because that's that white, white savior complex that we stay like, you know, we stay there. So anyway, I'm going to put myself on mute because my neighbor's downstairs with really loud music. So y'all don't hear that? No? Okay, good. All right. But anyway, so black, black, let let, let, let black women leave. Just, just let us do it. And women, and when I say women, I mean like all expansive with the why. Uh, you know, for me, I, I would just say that before Kimberly Crenshaw gave us language for intersectionality, black queer folks knew what that was, right? We knew what it was to be black, to be queer, to be a woman, to be marginalized, 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 marginalized in all these different ways. We knew what that felt like. And so we knew how to organize and fight for all those different identities that were intersecting at one time as we were trying to be human. And so I think that's why when you say like, trust black women, trust black queer women, trust how this movement is always led. If you look, I mean, if you look at Black Lives Matter, you're talking about three black queer women doing this particular type of work, Charlene Carruthers, black queer woman. And so I think when you think about the lives that we have to live as black queer women, we are always in those different positionalities, always intersecting, creating new ways in which to see the world and to see how oppressive it is. And so that's why when we lead movements, that's why when we think about freedom and justice, we are so inclusive because we know what it means to be marginalized in so many places. And so we never want that for anybody else. And so that's why when we say trust black women and see black queer women for what we are, how we lead is because we're leading because we have been marginalized in so many different ways. So you got to see how, how, how that world and that worldview allows us to see the world for how it is on so many different levels, on a gender level, on a race level, on a class level, on a sexist level, on all of those levels, we get to see the world. So when we lead, when we create movements, we're being as inclusive as possible because we see the world in all those lenses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like black queer women have experienced, could possibly have experienced, right, every type of marginalization that exists <laughs> with uh, race, class, gender, sexuality, religion, ability, age, and so on. Why wouldn't you want to pause and listen and learn from this woman? You know, everything great. If you go back and find any kind of advanced practice and education, any solution, any way forward, at the center of that will be a black woman. Yet oftentimes people don't want to say our names. They don't want to cite our work. They don't want to teach about us in classrooms. They don't want to fight for us when it comes to hiring practices. They don't want to to center us. Right. And so why wouldn't you want to listen from this group of people? They're the only group of people who have consistently gone for broke (laughs) for other women and for all of humanity. Mm. This is the starting place. To the wheels fall off. We go to the wheels fall off. Yeah, it's that trauma of erasure. It's the trauma of erasure. Like Batia and I were having a conversation, a text conversation about the other day. So I'm Goldie. I'm glad you you bring it up. But cite a sister. Yes. Cite a sister. Like the erasure in academia, the erasure walking down the street. There's so many ways that we are erased, and that is a part of the trauma that we experience. And also we're erased when we talk about racism. Like men can only do this race type of work. Mm-hmm. Right? When we think about who gets to talk about race and who gets to, you know, it's it's 
black men and white women get to talk about race, right? And so we oftentimes, you know, black women are fighting for spaces, but the foundation that we're fighting to get in, we built the foundation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we wouldn't be here. <laughs> I always say for black women. I don't think people give us honor and respect in ways that are needed. Like black folks wouldn't be here. The movement would not have continued. The revolution would have would not have continued if it wasn't for black women. I always say understand that. Always say when black women speak, humanity speaks. When black women speak, humanity speaks. I mean, if you all, I mean, I think so many people, I'm sure, saw that unbelievable speech, and I don't even know if she meant it to be a speech, Kimberly Jones. When she sat there and said, y'all lucky. We want equality and not revenge. Yes. That's what the compassion I'm talking about. Like the compassion that black people, that black folks have, the compassion that black women have after being disenfranchised and spit on, Y'all lucky we want equality and not revenge. That's that's the, the that belief in humanity and the compassion. Mm-hmm. Like we we've been we we could teach folks how to be emotionally intelligent. Right. Like we we do it every single day. Right. And so- when we in our face, we just learn to like. And when we, back in the day during slavery, when we got the way we were just yes, master. That's that's called emotion management. Well, that's why I get a little irritated when we talk and people say, well, it's what you're saying just for black people. And I say, well, black people are not a selfish people. Why would we keep what is great just for ourselves? You know, like, well, why would we keep what is excellent for just for ourselves? Like we this is excellence. And we are trying to say that we need to start with blackness. We have never started with blackness as the model in education. And the fact that we have to justify so much, why start with black models, black excellence, abolitionists like that, that uh, it it really baffles me uh, why we have to justify that so much, but why not? What group of people are are so loving after coming out of enslavement? What group of people have thrived in innovation, right? In imagination and in, in, um, inventions and in, in creating art and culture like us who have survived, as Tina says, and thrived. Who, who else? Like <laughs> us. And who have found joy in the midst of all the pain. The fact that they were still smiling and cultivating joy as an act of resistance is just that is fascinating and it's something to pay attention to. We are the next models for humanity and for our world. Wow. All right. You know, I am <laughs> I am getting already an enormous list of questions <laughs> that are piling up from our audience. I'm going to get to those in a minute, but I selfishly want to ask just a few more things. I really want to hear you all talk about what just happened to our schools, because this is I mean, this is this would be an amazing conversation at any moment. But it's at this moment where a lot of schools, almost all, are shuttered, where the buildings are sitting empty and school as we know it has been shattered. What do you what have you been thinking or learning in this coronavirus school shutdown? Like, what did you or we learn from this? 
You want to go with Tina? Oh, okay. I, lo- I, lo- I love what you got to say. We <laughs> already know. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was floored at how when we shut down schools, how so much became possible. So we shut down schools and in a matter of a month, we're done with standardized testing. Really? We've been fighting for that for decades and now you're done with standardized testing? Okay, cool. You know what? Every kid get a laptop to go home. But just <laughs> last week, those laptops, you, you couldn't take them out. I mean, they were like precious gold. Oh, you know what? Teachers, we need you. We're going to rely on your pedagogy and your ingenuity and your creativity during this time. Oh, so now we're a profession again. Parents, you are the most, you're the number one thing we need right now. Oh, we need parents. Oh, tech companies giving out free internet. Oh, you can give out free internet? <laughs> now we got millions of, like, it's, it's, they play their hand. And we have to say, we're not going back. The superintendent of the state of Georgia, the school, the state superintendent came out with this beautiful letter around mid-March. And he said, we want compassion over compliance. I said, wow. He said, we, we teachers, we want you to be more flexible. You're too rigid. This was in his letter. And all I'm saying is keep that same energy in 2020, 2021, 2022, and so on and so on and so on. Why did it take a pandemic to see the humanity in teaching? Why did it take a pandemic to see how extraordinary this job is? Why did it take a pandemic to see that we needed resources? Why did it take a pandemic for them to say, well, you know, because of the pandemic, the the gaps are going to be exacerbated. No shit. (laughs) So, I mean, I just... I think the pandemic has shown us a hand that they were willing to play in crisis that they were never willing to play before. And now we have to say that we're not going back. The managing of inequalities, we're not going back. And we have to be clear about that as educators. That's what abolition is about. To say that what you thought was normal, that was not normal. Expelling kids, killing kids, I mean, we haven't had a school shooting. <laughs> and that got to a point where it was normal to report on school shootings. It was normal to talk about black and brown children being expelled. It was normal to have police snatching and hurting and body slamming young girls in classrooms. That became normal. And we have to say is enough is enough. And this pandemic has given us opportunity to say that we're not going back. We got teachers now saying, I'm building, I'm making curriculum for my students. That's right. You should have been doing that in the first place. Right. So we have to now take this moment. And when we do reopen schools, to say that same energy, that same creativity, that same ingenuity, that same trust that you gave parents, that same trust that you gave teachers, we want it back. We're not going back to what we had. We got to be clear about that because they played their hand. They played it too soon. Yeah. And I think you should we should just drop the mic. You know what I mean? Because I like keep that same energy. And it's sort of like you revealed itself. It's the same thing, like the same the same question could be applied to this whole idea now of like performative wokeness and performative anti-racism. Like, where were you 
six years ago? Where were you last? Like, where were you two weeks ago? Where were you a month ago? And I think we have to start really asking the questions. Uh, speaking of asking the questions, I think there are some students who thrived during this time. And we need to ask those students, what caused you to thrive? What were the ingredients? What were the two things that you liked about this? What were the things you didn't like? And we have to ask a families what worked and what didn't work. And we have to think about where the partnerships that it be that, that came up all of a sudden between businesses, between families, between schools, where were they? And how can we lean into that a little bit more as we abolish the old and go forward with the new? And so like part of this, this work moving forward is asking the questions, demanding what we want, Folks, folks forget that tax, like if you go to public school or even if you go to private school, we are paying for our own schooling. And people forget that they have a voice. Yeah. So we, we have so many communities, especially black, black communities who are apathetic and believe that the school knows what's best for us. The school has never known what's best for us. And so how do we lean into our own magic, our own human goodness, our own compassion and make the demands that we need moving forward for folks to keep that same energy moving forward? Yeah. And, you know, Brian, I don't think that it's by chance that all this protest of anti-racism happened uh, concurrently as we're experiencing a pandemic. You know, I hope that we learn the the power and importance of our teachers. A lot of people appreciate teachers more when they had to homeschool their kids. <laughs> and I, I hope that we also learn that we have to be more urgent in our pedagogy because the inequalities that we all all of us have been talking about, they were just exposed more to some people. We knew about them. They just came to light, right? Whether it's access, um, teachers who've been teaching with worksheets and packets, remote learning, worksheets and packets, things just became a bit more amplified. But my main thing is that I hope that we understand that teaching skills and knowledge in schools is not enough. We need to teach them of how to navigate racism because when they leave our K-12 schools, we don't want them to contribute to more racism and oppression, nor do we want them to become neutral and silent, that can be just as dangerous. We want them to actively become woke. Like my t-shirt says, we obtain knowledge every day. We want them to agitate, to disrupt, to unhinge mm -hmm. oppression for other people. That's what it means to build a better world for all. So I hope we realize that skills only and testing and, and teaching skills only is not enough to 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 be in this world, especially a world and a society like within the United States. And just to add on to what Goldie just said. Go ahead, dude. Okay. I was like, one thing to add on to this is like racism didn't come out of nowhere. People learn it. Right. Like we, we it, we're seeped in it. And so we need to take the active measures and the active work to become anti-racist. Like you can't read away racism. Like I said, you can't tweet away racism. How are you going to change the way you live your life? How, do, how are you going to change the way that you see me, that you talk to me, that you regard me? How are you going to treat the way that you spend, say, change the way that you spend your money? How are you going to change the way that you do all of the things that you do in your life? Guided. And like and grounded in anti-racism and abolitionists and abolitionist like action. Yeah. And the one thing that I'll add really quickly is that please understand that abolitionist teaching or anti-racist teaching is not just for black schools. Mm -hmm. It really needs to be more in these white schools. Yes. That's where this work has to really go. We black folks. Don't, I don't need anti. I, I don't need anti-racist. 
Education. I know what racism looks like, smells like, feels like, tastes like. I know how it through and through. So we are, we are not going to get to this knee-jerk reaction where black schools need anti-racist education and white schools need what? <laughs> we got to make sure that we are saying that anti-racist education is needs to be in white schools. Yeah. It's not just like, you know, because we had that conversation happen with multicultural education. We had that happen with critical race um, theory. We had that happen with culturally relevant pedagogy where they felt like this is what black kids need. No, this is what white kids need. If we're going to have a better world, a world full of justice and love, it is for white kids at a yeah. very young age to get this type of education. So don't I just have- say that this, yeah, don't categorize this type of education. Yeah, I have been in some of the most toxic schools that are the top schools in our country, right? Because they're they're high performing. Uh, and I'm just like, I want it to run out. I've been, and a, a teacher told me at one of those schools that Asian students are smarter than black students. Can you imagine how he treats his black students? If you tell an adult, a black woman adult this, these are the most toxic schools. We have to even redefine what is achievement and what is success. We need to stop throwing certain schools under the bus just because they don't hold up to certain data that you chose to collect. And finally, I just want to add, I am so tired of people demeaning black and brown parents for not coming to one um, parent teacher conference and then claiming that they there no parent involvement. What about the parents that are teaching racism at home and those kids come into the schools and spray paint things in the wall and create trauma for our black and brown kids and for other kids? What about anti-racist parent involvement? Are we not talking about those parents who are perpetuating this? Because they get it from somewhere, like Dina said. It doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the same narrative. It's like black people don't vote. Do you know what black people have gone through to vote and we still have to go through the vote? I live in Georgia. My wife and I, we got to check the road every three months just to make sure we own it. Mm. I mean, it's, it's amazing how these narratives catch on. Mm. Black parents don't care. Black people don't vote. We're lazy. How do you build a country in bondage and they call you lazy. Mm. Like we have to be thinking about just how quickly these myths and stereotypes and lies about black people just catch on. Mm. My mother never came to school, but I bet if you laid your hand on me, she'd be there. Yep. Black parents care. That's and that we also don't think about the trauma that has happened to black parents as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I mean, and school traumatic for a lot of the communities. Like I, when I was teaching in the Bronx, the parents also lived and went to that. They lived in the community. They went to that school and they didn't have a good experience. So like they see the school as a, tra- a, tra- a trauma, like a place where trauma is going to happen. And then we're like, you know, they never come in. And then we say all of the things and excuse and Well, that's why the kids are like this. That's mm-hmm. why we're this. And one of the things that I want to say, too, that you were getting to, Bettina, is that we, when we go to black and brown schools, we usually have an intervention. Say it's like, you know, whatever it is, like it could be SEL. We cannot teach this intervention so that now our students know how to manage and um, deal with and navigate racism, right? So it's still seeped in white supremacy. And mm-hmm. that's why like we need to like abolish it and get rid yeah. of it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about, let's talk about what are some resources that people can reach for? What are some uh, what are you reading? What are you connected to? What are the networks like? How can people begin? 
I want to give a shout out to the Black Lives Matter at School movement, which is a grassroots movement uh, promoted entirely by teachers and parents and students uh, that has four demands nationwide. Counselors, not cops, hire black teachers, teach black history and ethnic studies and end uh, zero tolerance discipline policies and replace it with restorative justice. Uh, and you can just go to Black Lives Matter at school dot com uh, to find out more about that. But what are you all connected to or or think that are great places to start? I, I, I want to say that uh, a place like if you are uh, you identify as a woke white person or a white woke person, start at home. Start at home, get your cousins, because I think a lot of times folks avoid the conversation with their like that racist uncle or that racist, you know, whomever in your family and they just avoid it. Like, I need you to fight for my humanity. Let your folks see my humanity because I don't have that familial love. You do. So I need you to get your cousins. I need you to always understand that the work, this work is is is, is a practice. You just don't check a box. You don't read, oh, you don't read a book and say, well, this I read the book, so therefore I'm not racist anymore. It's gonna take a lifetime to learn, to unlearn a white supremacy. And so I would say, start at home, get your cousins, get your uncle, get, get all of them. Because you have to ground that in familial love so that they could see our collective humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Y'all got like tangible resources, but I I think we have to start there. Yeah. I, um, you know, I'm excited about the abolitionist teaching network that Bettina is um, creating and developing. Um, Speaking of like starting with self, I'm, you know, I love the work that Yolanda Seeley Ruiz is doing around unpacking self and racial literacy. Uh, Sherelle MacArthur is doing like beyond life coaching. So she's helping us for in terms of like anti-trauma and wellness, Um, hip hop, ed, nothing but education. I have been working on um, developing, uh, this is kind of my freedom dream, if you will, is developing under uh, my website, hillpedagogies.com. Hill stands for histories, identities, literacies, and liberation. But in the spirit of brilliance of We Buy Black, um, it's a Black Muslim brother who started that at my masjid. Mm -hmm. I want to create a space to share educational books, programs, frameworks, resources owned and created by Black people. Like we educate black so that we don't always have to go to those uh, certain publishing companies or uh, book to get our text, to get our frameworks, our programs. Like it's like we, we support and build upon each other. So to advance schools and educational spaces. Uh, the one thing, a book that just really got me going um, and thinking differently is Charlene Carruthers book. Um, And what I love that she does in this book, she asks five questions. The first question that she asks um, in this chapter five called Fast Five Questions, like, who am I? Who who, who are you? Have you examined who you are? Do you know who you are? The next question she asks, uh, who are are my people? (laughs) Who are your people in this movement work? Do you have the people around you to make the strides that you want to make in your school? Who's your team? The next question she has, what do we want? I think oftentimes in education, we talk ad nauseum about what we don't want. We talk ad nauseum about what doesn't work. But have we sat and dreamt and thought and carefully thought about what do we want? If someone would say, what do you want? Do you have an answer for that? 
Mm. And then she asked the next question. Yes. Um, what are we building? As abolitionists, what are we building? Do we know who we are? Do we know what we want? And what are we building? And the last question that I asked that she asked, I think is so important is, can we win? Can we win? And then some organizations around the country, I think that does amazing work is Asada's Daughters, mm-hmm. um, Critical Resistance, mm. created, co-founded by Angela Davis. you got the Black Youth 100 Project. Uh, you got Free Minds, Free People, which is an education um, organization. It does a yearly conference that's amazing. Um, Teachers for Social Justice. You got uh, Education Liberation. You got an Atlanta, Georgia song, uh, Southerners on New Ground. And definitely folks like the Dream Defenders. So I think there's organizations out there that do this work and there's ways in which you can plug in right now around the country from Black Youth 100 to organization education like Free Minds, Free People. And thank you, Goldie, for the love. Uh, July 6th, Abolitionist Teacher Network will be launching and we will do one thing and one thing only, and that is to radicalize teachers. Mm. Awesome. I want to also just say um, the Black Black Teachers Project is also a a great sort of like focusing on self-care because we do get spirit murdered in our buildings and we get spirit murdered trying to keep our children from being spirit murdered. So like part of this work is taking care of ourselves was going back to what Audrey Laura talking about our self-care is, is, you know, our self-preservation, right? It's an act of resistance because care is not distributed equitably. Uh, So I would just say, I would just want to give up um, a big up the, the Black teacher project. All right. We've got a couple, we've got some more than a couple of questions from the chat, but let me try to put some of them together. I see there's one from Victoria and one from Laura that are almost the same that are about basically if we're working in a kind of day-to-day way trapped in this framework of standardized tests uh, and these, you know, standardized curricula, how do we commit to abolitionism? Like what do you do if it's not immediately changing? How do you be an abolitionist in this school system as it is, basically? So, you know, there was one time when I was a seventh grade teacher and our school, our principal, our principal presented to us this this like online test that our students need to take. Now, the problem is that the online test needed the Internet and there were bandwidth issues. Nonetheless, it came out of a, a, a it was based on a study um, uh, that came out of Harvard that that basically said if we pay the idea was that if we pay if we pay children to take the test, maybe they'll come to school. So it already started with a deficit mindset because it came from like in, in Mexico, if we paid families to go to the clinic, then they will go and take care of themselves. So I, so I basically just taught my students just the, the genesis and the, I, I didn't tell anything. I just taught them about it because it's important to know who we are and where we come from and sort of the background of things. And I said, what do you all want to do? You want to take the test? So my students said, no, like they don't have to, they, they, I'm not going to force them to take the test, but that was like one act of, and like, you know, the principal comes to my door, you know, Miss Simmons, your students are not taking this test. I said, they don't want to take the test and you can't make it. You can't make them take the test. So like, we have to have those little acts of resistance every single day. Cause it's trickled. Then the other class is going to do it. And the other class, that's why folks are like buy black, Everyone's like, don't go shopping here. It's those acts of resistance that we need to be like the people need to understand that this work, you may not see it, but you may get harmed in the process. Mm-hmm. And like you're, you got to be about that life or you're not you're not anti-racist. 
or you're not abolitionist. So that's just like one act is like small acts and multiple acts of resistance and empower your students to with knowledge so that they can make the decisions themselves about what they want to do and how they want to resist, right? Make it community generated. And then also one thing that, that, that is like, even when you think about, you know, chattel slavery and how information and knowledge was kept from us, Part of that is giving the knowledge to the community and make sure, make sure, making sure that it gets there. So how are you connecting with families and with communities so that they know the power of their voice, which a lot of families are like apathetic and, and don't come, not, not a lot of a lot of families are like traumatized and don't come in and, and develop this like, you know, nothing's going to change. Right. Because after you get hit, hit, hit enough, you're like, you know, I don't want to get hit anymore. So you stay away. Mm-hmm. So my thing is, is how do we empower the families to know that their voice matters and their voice can make changes? So those are just little acts of resistance. Look back to all of the literature and community organizing. Like that's what teaching is. Teaching should be revolutionary. Teaching should be community organizing and teacher uh, teaching should be community driven. So that's just little small acts of resistance. Ooh. Yeah, to um, to add to that in terms of pedagogy, an ideal world will get this culturally and historically responsive curriculum handed to us as teachers. We don't have to sprinkle it with <laughs> equity dust, but we have to usually revise or modify the curriculum that's given to us. So I say, while you do have that curriculum, uh, which is typically embedded in skills, ask yourself, like, how can this unit plan help my students to learn something about themselves or others. Just by asking that question, you're making the unit better, right? Ask yourself, how does this unit plan um, make my students become smarter about something outside of equations, citing textual evidence outside of the skills, right? What new people, places, things am I teaching? What kind of um, histories am I unearthing that they may not have learned about ever? Um, And then the last question, how would this unit plan advance my students thinking about equity, power, and anti-oppression. If you're just teaching within this model, that's already doing abolitionist work. The model came from abolitionists. It is a more advanced model. So that's something that you can do. If you're a school leader, you can change the interview questions. You ask new teachers, you can change your mission statement. Is your mission statement just grounded in skills as achievement, or is it also grounded in identity, intellectualism, and criticality? And then you can also collect the data you want to collect. It does not have to be the state mandated test. If you want to know how much your students have advanced in their identity development, then assess it. If you value it, assess it. Collect the data. You tell your own narrative. Do not wait for the administrators or anyone to tell you what your story is for the school. So that's my uh, two cents on what you can do now. That's two cents? (laughs) <laughs> you know, a, a dime and a nickel, maybe. <laughs> okay. Uh, another another uh, listener or viewer asks, what role do you think teacher unions could play in the overall project of abolition? And the, the uh, person also adds, uh, thanks for the work you're doing. I'm all fired up. Okay. Um <laughs> So it's it's funny because I think teacher unions are at a crossroads right now to be thinking about what what they have done to perpetuate white supremacy at teacher unions and what they can now do with the power that they have. 
And so I think teacher unions have to be thinking about the ways in which they can leverage the power that they have to change curriculum, to change policies. They have that power. Teacher unions have the power to structure the day and what happens in the day. And so if you want to see this type of curriculum, if you want to see black teachers hired, if you want to see all of that done, teacher unions have a huge hand to play in that. I think another teacher, another thing unions can do is to say, listen, in order to be anti-racist, in order for teachers to do that anti-racist work, this is about healing. So we want therapists for teachers. We want free therapists for teachers to do this type of work. So black folks to heal, for black folks to deal with the trauma of what it means to be in that, of being a black educator, and then for white folks to do the work to become anti-racist. That takes work, that takes therapy, that's gonna take support. And so now we have teacher unions that create policies, that create standards. We need y'all to get on board with helping us as abolitionists, with helping us as anti-racists to do that work on a policy level and to push the levers and to advocate for that type of change. And one thing I would, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, you could add a little bit. Um, one of the things too is that oftentimes we become um, so jaded or so um, tired in education, right? Because we're just tired. Like y'all give us a lot of stuff to do with no resources and then want us to move mountains. But one of the things I think also that, that a part of it is that we take whatever the union tells us and whatever the union does, and there's a disconnect between actually the communication between the teachers and the union. It is time for teachers to organize and make demands of the unions to do exactly what Bettina is saying. It's like, oh, y'all want you y'all think we should have more diverse teachers? Well, let's go to the union and see how the, the union can help us. If y'all think we need self-care built into our instruction and also for our students, all right. Let's go to the union, right? People don't understand, don't always understand the power of the union. We only see it when it comes to like employment or discri discrimination, all these things. But we can use them for their power to demand abolitionist teaching and abolitionist, abolitionist practice in our school buildings and beyond. Cool. Um, another viewer asks, do we need to create our own schools? <laughs> um, you know, and not to put in a plug, but if I was the U.S. The U.S. Uh, United States Secretary of Education, we wouldn't have to do so much. <laughs> That's another freedom dream of mine. Um, I, I do. It's my hope that parents reclaim their schools reclaim their communities. You know, anytime we have a problem or issue or challenge in education, we only have to go to black abolitionists to find the solution or find the, the path forward. And that's what they did. They cultivated their own schools. OK, you, you don't want to get it right and give our students what we need because it's a civil right. <laughs> it's a human right to teach in response to who our students are and give them what they need. And we just haven't been doing that. And so it's like, what else do we need to do? We've been asking for it. We've been advocating for it, you know, and that's why we see so much protest happening the way it is, because folks have been asking. Now we're demanding it. Now we're asking. Now we're demanding. So I just feel like 
I think it's time for parents to really rethink where they're putting their children, reclaim, because if there wasn't any schools, any students in the schools, there wouldn't be any schools. So I think a lot of power lies with the parents. And then I'm all for cultivating our own schools as we're trying to get other schools right. Right. But I'm telling you, until we start to make transformative changes with the state standards, the curriculum, the teacher evaluation and the state tests then, you know, that's when we're going to see the change, when we see changing those four things in our schools. So I think two two things can be true. You can work on this part of education system and you can cultivate your own schools. Mm -hmm. And to get to Dee's point that you made earlier, it's our money. Mm -hmm. Yes. We have to remember this is our money. We pay for schools with our, this is, we pay teachers. We pay schools, we pay police. And so it's not just about saying we want our own schools. It's also about saying, we want our money. So when we talk about defund the police, we're talking about we want ownership over how our money is spent on us. And so we have to make sure and see that we're not we're not asking for something that we're not paying for, that we're not a part of. And too often they make us feel like that we are begging. We're not begging. We actually built this country for free. And we also are taxpayers and we want to see what our money is doing for us. So we also have to make sure that we understand the value and the power that we have as citizens. Oftentimes they make us think that we don't have any power to ask and to demand what's rightfully ours. So yes, we can do both. We can shut down these schools until they're right and create our own schools. We can be critical and build at the exact same time, but remembering this is our stuff. So I always tell, I always say this, two things. If you're a teacher and you won't send your kids to that school, but you use that money to, t- to have your kids go off and do something else, that's the problem. Yeah. You will spend, you will use the money from the black community that we pay, but you will not send your kids to our schools. Yeah. That's going to be, we have to get back saying that this is our money. We want to see our schools funded like this because this is our money. Yes. I think we have time to squeeze in one more question here before we're, we're running out of time. This is an amazing conversation. Um, so I see there's a question that says, based on the people that we're citing here, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson, Gilmore, and others, that a lot of their work is inseparable from anti-capitalism. Is abolitionist teaching anti-capitalist by nature? Abolition is anti-capitalist by nature. You know, we know right now that capitalism is the structure that we are under. And so we're going to use this structure to our best ability. But what we also know is that capitalism will not free us. Mm-hmm. So right now, this and see, this is a very, what I love about when you go to places in, on the continent, you know, I was lucky enough to travel there with the illustrious, the beautiful Dr. Cynthia Dillard. And what I learned when I was in Ghana is that black folks do and. They don't do or. They do and, 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 and. And so we are going to use these systems and we're going to push these systems and we're going to use these systems for the best of our ability. And then when we can destroy them, we're going to keep destroying So capitalism is, destroying capitalism is a part of our freedom dream, is a part of the long-term goal. But like we know folks like this tell us is that we need a 40-year plan. We need a 50-year plan for freedom. And anti-capitalism is part of that 50, 60-year plan towards freedom. 
And you got to remember that this this country was built off of stolen black labor and that all of those folks who are positions of power who have that money, you got it because you stole it. You know, and I think, you know, it's always so funny. Can I throw money at that? I'm like, yo, that money is mine. Like, <laughs> that money is mine, actually. You just, you stole it. You know, and I think, of course, you know, being, you know, an ab- abolitionist is anti-capitalism, right? Because there's a connection between capitalism and slavery in this country. There's a capitalism uh, between, you know, how communities like redlining were built to disenfranchise people, how, you know, the hierarchy of structures in organizations who get Gets paid and who has the power to say this? That's all capitalism. And honestly, to me, that's whiteness. And we have to eradicate whiteness. We have to ab- abolish whiteness as well. And Last word, Goldie. No, we need to we need to decolonize and disrupt whiteness. Every it, it is so it pervades everything that we do. How we start a meeting, even oh agenda items. That's whiteness, right? So it's it's so normalized that we have to disrupt it, including disrupting and decolonizing our budgets and how we spend our money in schools. And so you have to just have a keen awareness that it is there if you're going to agitate, if you're going to unhinge, if you're going to work each day to make it better. So that's just my, that's just what I wanted to say. The last thing I will say is that, first of all, Brian, thank you. Yes. You have been absolutely wonderful. And the Schomburg for always supporting all three of us, the Schomburg for always doing the work that is so important for our liberation and our love. Thank you to Haymarket for having this and this platform. And so just want to say a big shout out to you, Brian. Um, You've been awesome every step of the way. Um, And just in my career and the careers of black women and black scholars in general, your support and education has been just wonderful. So I just want to say a big shout out to you and say thank you to the Schomburg. Yes, speaking on this platform has been a dream of mine for a long time. So thank you. And I cannot thank my sisters enough. Brian, you're my brother. Thank you. My sisters, Dina and Tina, <laughs> you know, to do this work with you all, it, it that's what keeps me every day going. Like, because I know I have sisters like you in my village and and with me every single step of the way. So thank you. Thank you. Love y'all. All right. Thank you all for joining us tonight. I just want to remind everybody, if you can make a donation, no matter how small, please consider giving. Thanks to Haymarket Books and the Schomburg Center for organizing this event. Thank you to everybody who tuned in. Good night, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.